to one woman, he was like a, a decorated Navy Vietnam pilot. <laughs> you know, to so other people, he was people, a he serial was a, perpetrator in a sense. While staying married to my mother okay. and I, and being a doctor. I mean, when I think about it as an adult, I'm like, how did he have time to be a doctor? He had so many different lives and girlfriends and stories. And it's the same with, with this John Meehan character. Like, how do these people keep all this straight? That's how you separate empathetic people from you know, non-empathetic people. And that really defines like the cluster Bs, a lot of like the narcissists, sociopaths, psychopaths, they lack empathy. So that's how they're able to get away with things and lie and really do that because they don't have that conscience that it's not right. Where, you know, you and I were like, we're telling a lie and we're like, oh my gosh, I can't keep up with this because this is, this is a lie. Testimony continued today in the most notorious criminal trial in Richland County history. Dr. John Boyle is accused of killing his wife, Noreen, and burying her body in the basement of his new home in Erie, Pennsylvania. The 12-year-old son finally took the stand. As I heard a scream, I heard a thud. It was about this loud. We, the jury, find the defendant guilty. When I was 12 years old, my testimony sent my father to prison for murdering my mother. This podcast serves as a type of therapy and reconciliation for myself and it is my hope that it helps anyone who has experienced deception, betrayal, and dark trauma. I'm Collier Landry, and this is Moving Past Murder. Hey, movers, what's going on? Welcome back to another episode of Moving Past Murder. I'm your host, Collier Landry, and it is so good to be with all of you once again here on my YouTube channel, on all the audio platforms that you guys are listening to, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts from. Thank you all so much for being here. Today is April Fool's Day as this episode comes out. And I wish I had this April Fool's joke that I could tell you that I just don't have. I thought I could come up with something really elaborate, but I can't. I mean, I guess my elaborate thing would have been like, what if somebody punched somebody at the Academy Award? Oh, yeah, that really happened. <sighs> it was a real thing. That all happened. That was violence that we saw play out on television. Um as Chris Rock said, that was like the greatest moment in television history. Um, no, it really wasn't. It was really unfortunate. Um, but speaking on of, of violence on television, that is what we are going to talk about today with my guest. But first, want to say thank you for being here. If you can and you're watching this on YouTube, please click like and subscribe. It helps with the algorithm. It's right down here somewhere. Follow me on all the socials at Call Your Landry, Instagram, Twitter. You guys know I go live every Tuesday on Instagram Live, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on every Tuesday. And also, I have set up a Patreon for you guys to help support the program because you guys have asked, how can we help support the program? That is how you can do it because this enables me to continue to deliver content that I feel speaks to you guys, my audience. And you guys are reaching out and really engaging with me. And that is fantastic. So I know what I'm doing is really helping a lot of people. It helps me. It helps you. It's really cool to do, but I do have to keep the lights on. So there's my sales pitch. I appreciate it so much. If you can do it, if not, it's okay. Just support by telling your friends, family, getting people, driving people to the program, because one day this will be a fantastic little enterprise that I can constantly do for you guys because I really, really love it. I got to be honest, I have found this medium of podcasting and content creation that is based solely on myself 
really amazing. And as a lot of you guys know, I am a filmmaker. That's what I do for a living. I made a murder in Mansfield. I've made a bunch of other things. I have, for you guys that don't know, I've directed two music videos that have over a billion hits on YouTube. That's crazy. <laughs> I am not in the music videos, but the artist is so talented that I work with. I have just been very blessed in that world. Um, so everything is very cool. And anyways, I love creating content for you guys. That's what I want to do. Enough about that. It's about you guys. So I have a comment that came in from a viewer, Elena Butler on YouTube. And she says, as a psychologist, I know that it's difficult to explain to girls and women that they need to run away from a sociopathic partner as soon as possible. Then they give them another chance. Elena, um, and she was referring to, she had just watched my sociopath showdown or sociopath matchup episode comparing my father to that of Chris Watts, um, who was a killer in Frederick, Colorado. I won't rehash that story. It's really terrible. Um, and yes, there, <laughs> it is a real thing. And it's just not only for women, it is for men as well, but it is obviously we know way more common for women. Look, my mother couldn't get away from a sociopath and her life was taken because of that. And, um, it's really, really hard. It, it, when you are in a relationship that deals with people that are having like coercive control and manipulation tactics and gaslighting, it gets really, really confusing. It's, it affects your family. It affects your life. You feel like you're going crazy. These are all normal things. And this is why I make all this stuff. That's why I share my father's letters. I share my experiences with you. And I talk to really interesting people, which is what we are coming to today. So there are many times when I engage with a lot of you uh, in the real world and, or you reach out to me and you guys have some really incredible stories. And um, a lot of you say, oh, you know, Collier, I, I feel bad telling you my story because it's no... It's not really as, it's not horrible like yours is. Look, as I tell everyone, your experience is unique to you guys. Just like my experience is unique to me. This is not a contest to see who can one-up them with the worst shit that has happened to all of us. I understand that I am the exception and not the rule when it comes to like trauma and overcoming all of these really horrific things that can happen in a person's life. But in no way, shape or form, does that ever discount the way that you guys are feeling when you are in these relationships or you are in these scenarios or you have to deal with something that is really harrowing and you really have to find the courage within yourself to overcome those extraordinary circumstances and defy seemingly insurmountable odds. So very rarely do I come across someone who has a story that I go, whoa, that is really, that really hits home because I can totally relate to you. Well, I had the pleasure of getting to know this young woman who I just felt this like instant connection with because wow, she's been through it too. And on the flip side, when her, the perpetrator that was in her life was exerting coercive control over her mother and her family and her sisters, she was faced with a choice, a life or death choice. I am talking about Tara Newell. She is the daughter of Deborah Newell. She was played by Julia Garner on the first season of the wildly successful podcast turned television series, Dirty John. 
about the story of real life con artist John Meehan, who posed as a very successful anesthesiologist and got involved and got married to her mother, Deborah, and then proceeded to wreak unbelievable havoc on her family. So much so that it ended up confronting her in a parking garage, in an apartment complex in Orange County, when John Meehan sought out to take Tara's life. And by the grace of God or divine intervention or whatever you want to call it, the knife that he was trying to attack her with flew out of his hand. Tara found the strength to grab that knife and defended herself and killed John Meehan. And that might sound to a lot of you like a really extreme situation because it is, but also we're going to talk about like, yes, she defended herself, but she also you know, is dealing with the fact and struggling with the trauma of not only the violation of seeing this man just pick apart her family and exert this control over her mother, but also come and attack her. And then for her to find the strength and turn around and be able to defend herself, justfully defend herself against this guy. You know, she's an incredible young woman who has come through so much and still like myself every day deals with this trauma and, and has to put on a brave face for the world and say, Hey, I'm here, but she's done that. And it's just one of those stories that really warms my heart. So I was really privileged to get to know my guest today. And I am pleased to welcome to the program, Tara Newell. My guest today is Tara Newell and um, I'm pronouncing that correctly. Tara Newell. Uh, My guest today is Tara Newell, and we are discussing the real story of Dirty John. And and as we are both true crime survivors, um, so Tara, what I want to ask you is because of my sort of position, we were just talking about this previously. Um, So CrimeCon is coming up the end of April. We were talking about going. And as people that have been through this, and then there's a fan base. So one of my sort of... um, Things that I have been very, I wouldn't say obsessed with, but trying to understand as someone who has lived through all of this stuff is why do you think people are so obsessed with true crime? I mean, there's a convention, CrimeCon. Yeah. And why do you think it's so popular? I was, you know, my family's case and what happened with my mother is one of the, it was on Forensic Files and it's one of, there's 450 episodes in that show. I'm like top 10 of what happened. And, and I, I was speaking to the woman who's writing the book, uh, writes the blog forensic files now, which is a huge blog. And then is writing the book on forensic files. And I said, what do you think it is? Why people are so obsessed with true crime. So as someone who's been through it, who's lived through these extraordinary circumstances, what do you, why do you think that is? So I think that it is very intriguing to know why people do the most evil act that a person can do in a sense. And I think that people are curious to that reason, but also, you know, going back to like Ted Bundy and like people kind of like lorizing him, I think people are attracted to these perpetrators in a sense. And they want to know, well, like, you know, not everyone. I think that there's, two types of people, you know, there's the people that go into it. They're wanting to know why these evil acts are done. And then there's the people that are like genuinely like curious, like, 
you know, this person's attractive. Like, why am I attracted to them? And why are they doing this stuff? And so they want to get more involved with their own curiosity. So it's always like something intrigues them to look further into this case or whatever. At least for me, I like to look into cases and understand like the psychopathy of things. Yeah, me too. For sure. I, um, yeah, I think that, um, cause I just have the hardest time because these, you know, these are, you know, I got into doing the podcast as my way of, of healing and, and I, you know, starting back with the film, right. A murder of Mansfield. I got into it because I wanted to heal myself and change one person's life and bring forward these things. Now this was of my own doing, you know, yeah. I created the concept. It was originally a pilot for television and then, you know, approach investigation, discovery agent, this whole thing. Barbara Koppel, two-time Oscar winner, got involved, and then we made the film, right? But um, for you in your circumstance, yours is a little different with telling your story because there was, and this is something I would love to, you know, I want to talk with you with your mother, but it, you know, there's this journalist that told this story. It became this podcast, 50 million people listened. Then it became a television show and you know, obviously when you make a documentary, you don't make any money, right? Yeah. Um, well, you make obviously... it a little sometimes. <laughs> well, well I'm saying with me, with myself, like okay. my personal, because I, I, I hardly made anything. I didn't do it for money. I did okay. it for my mother's story and things of that nature. But it's, it's interesting because there's all these people that sort of profit along the way. Right. Yeah. And, um, you know, like forensic files, sure they do a, a story about case. There's, you know, there's very large podcasts that make a tremendous amount of money and sign big deals with companies based upon sort of, you know, I mean, to, not to be morbid about it, but it's almost like they, they profit on the suffering of others, right? Oh yeah. Or the exploitation of other people's stories. So when, you know, when something like Dirty John came out and I actually had friends that worked on the show. Okay. <laughs> Um, the, the, you know, the first season about your story. Um, do you, and, and correct me if I'm wrong. Did Juno Temple play you? Um, so Juno Temple played my sister Got and it. then Julia Gardner played me in the show. Got it. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, no worries. Um, so I think that, uh, you know, when you look at these things and then people sort of take them over and then it becomes this whole machine. I mean, how much. How much influence do you have in something like that? I think people are really curious about that because I think that they just go, at least in my case, oh yeah, you made all this money off this. I was like, no, yeah. <laughs> that's not how it worked. But other people did and other people do and other people use it. And I think that it borders lines on, on me when I, you know, the purpose of this podcast is to talk to somebody like yourself, survivors, people, how did you, it's called moving past murder. So how do you move past these things? And we'll get into that in a second. But what I what I am also very fascinated with is how there's this become this whole culture of obsession and how people cash in on it. And, it, you know, for me, I did I feel like I did it for the right reasons for you and your mother. I feel like you do it for the right reasons. How do you sort of straddle that juxtaposition with people that are profiting off that? So I want to um, tell everyone that, like, if you go on a podcast and you share like all of your stories, story that becomes public information and my mom and I didn't know this we just wanted to do the podcast to create awareness for women and you know 
I was very religious with God at that time. So I felt that it was God telling me that I needed to share the story. And I prayed, did everything and waited for that answer. So I felt it was, you know, God's calling. And then it gets turned into this TV show and stuff. And it's kind of crazy because the LA Times sold our story rights in a sense. Um, And we did get a little bit from that. Um, Well, you know, you get like a paycheck for selling part of your story rights if you get involved in the story yeah yeah. um so i was appreciative of them bringing us in like that but then i was also talking to other agents seeing if like we could sell the story and it was a bit more complicated than me trying to sell my story if that makes sense yeah um so it kind of sucked because I'm living in my trauma and I have to relive it when I watch the TV and I'm living like a broke college student right now and there's nothing like wrong about it but it's like well actually there is you know there's people that are benefiting off of my trauma and I'm here paying like hundreds of thousand dollars in therapy. Well, at least my mom is for me. And I'm so thankful that I have that support. But if I didn't, I would be, I don't know what I would do, to be honest, because just there are some days where I can't get it fully together. I understand. (laughs) And, you know, you're, I don't know. It's just like, you have to take that time off and do your self-care and do your things so that you don't, And for me, and I hate to say this, so that I don't go straight into fight mode and want to strangle the person next to me. (laughs) Yeah, it's, I'm, I, so out of anybody, I can understand exactly what you're talking about because I've been there. And whereas I had some control over the story because I took something to, I took the initiative for all of that is why I came to Hollywood. But when I do see, I remember watching, and I watched the show probably maybe a year and a half ago, I think. Okay. And I I literally watched it. I had no idea what it was about. And I literally watched it because my friends worked on it. They were like, oh, I'm working on Dirty John with Eric Bana and and Connie Britton. I was like, oh, I used to watch Nashville. I'm sure you watched, you like country music. I'm sure you watched Nashville. And we're a massive fan as I was. Well, I had a few friends working on the show too. So I was like, yeah, it it was exciting because of that you know exactly and that's how i watched it and then i started doing a little backstory on it then i was like oh this is what i hate about this whole situation is i i know as somebody who's been through all this and i know that it's like oh yeah this and this is not to shame anyone for profiting or anything like that that's not what i'm doing here but what i'm saying is is your intentions are to get the story out to help other people like me. Yeah, I want to show and you know in my in the film I confront my father in prison. Ask him why did he kill my mother? He's a sociopath. He you know his name is John ironically, um, and was a doc, but he was a real doctor. Uh-huh. And he um, you know I see so, I mean complete parallel traits. You know the cur- uh, a coercive control, manipulation, gaslighting. You know, my father is a legit sociopath and psychopath. Okay. And probably, I think, from what I've listened to even in, in the podcast describing uh, John John Meehan, right, yes. is, is 
you know, that was the same thing and this isolation that they do. And it just growing up with that as a child and then you see it. And then, you know, I, on this, on this show, I read my father's letters from prison. In fact, you know, I did an episode yesterday where I read it and it's just staggering. You know, I have letters from my father over a period of 30 years. You know, he went, this all happened in 1990. So from 1990 to like 2022, I don't, he hasn't written me lately, but I have these letters and this, the shit that he would write me as a child and blaming me, you know, in the film, we show these letters, but blaming me and, and just the manipulation that he, it's, it's staggering. When you're a child, you don't realize this is going on. And I remember my adopted parents would read the letters. They would open every letter that would come to the house because they wanted to see what was going on Um, because they were looking to protect me, right? Because I would, I would, I you know, my family abandons me. I go into the foster care system. I tell, I testify against my father. I'm still in the foster care system. I'm finally adopted out to a family and then, uh, or they get custody of me and then I'm finally adopted like a year later. Right. So they wanted to be protective and they, they also knew my father. You know, I, I was, I stayed in the small town that I was in. Right. And it was a massive, and look, you come from orange County. So even though it's Southern California and people think it's really Orange County. I mean, what do you guys, Newport or, or Irvine? Yeah, like, like it's Newport, a, yeah. It's a very small town vibe in oh, Orange yeah. County, 100%. It, it is so different from LA in that in those terms where it is close to two major cities in California, but Orange County is very much, like I've done a lot of business down there. I lived down there before when I first came to California. It's a very small town vibe. So when things like this happen, it just sort of overtakes your world like it did for me. So it, it's... It's interesting to to speak to someone like yourself who's been through the same thing and hear it. Now, you know, you met you were going to the Jason Aldean concert the day that when you, you know, well, I have a couple of questions about that day. Okay. Um, and I don't really want to really we look, we're not here to relive what happened because everybody knows that they can tune into other podcasts. But I guess my thing is there was something that I list when I was listening to the podcast, and there was the moment which is this very sad moment in, in the fact that, look, it's all tragic. It's tragic for you. It's tragic for your mother. It's tragic for your friends, your, your family. It's also tragic for his family and, and for him as well, that people resort to these types of things and that they think this is their only way out. Yeah. And, and then you're put in this position where you're having to defend yourself um, and feeling like your life is threatened. I do want to know, you know, one of the, the biggest things for me is I was yanked out of my home the day before they discovered my mother's body. And they say, you know, 20 minutes to you pack a bag. You got 20 minutes. Boom, boom, boom. My dog was there and they said, well, you can, we'll come back for your dog. And I never saw my dog again. I want to know what happened to cash. Oh my gosh. You're going to make me cry now. Um, so, and Murphy and Murphy too. I'm a, such a big dog lover. And my Chihuahua just turned 15 or 17 on um, the 5th, March 5th. And she's like my little angel. Oh, and, I uh, and I, oh, I love, I love animals so much. And, um, I thought about that, like this little heroic doggy, you know, and, 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 but, but getting back to what I was going to say was there was this moment, um, when they were talking about you guys were at the crematorium and he's in the cardboard box and you guys watched the, the body go. Oh, in. I wasn't there. I was at oh, home on the couch. Yeah. I had nothing to do. And I had, well, my mom came back and she 
like had his um life rights in a sense so she could sign off on his death sure <laughs> and pull the plug and we actually had her sign over the rights to his sister because we also just didn't think that that would look good <laughs> oh sure and it, i don't think that she should have had that responsibility especially after what i had to do you know i don't think that that should have been her choice so we had her sign over it to her sister and cash speaking of cash he actually like went with me to the hospital and stuff too and cash was okay but um cash passed away this past year oh i'm so sorry i'm a brain tumor and you know i love him and but it was it was his time to go sure you know um i actually had an ex pass away the same day as him and that ex hit me with a car and stuff so it was like that he had to leave his role as my protector mm. but murphy is with my brother and his family that has kids and she's living her best life <laughs> that's good you know that was one of the things with when i made my film i screened it in my hometown and we had the projector go out because it was so hot the projector overheated and it shut down there's this woman that was trying to get, I could see was trying to get my attention amongst the crowds before the film started. Yeah. Because of that moment, and this was like probably one of the most amazing things about like making the film and, you know, because you're trying to get answers that you don't have, right? I don't know much about my family or anything. Because my father's a, a lying sociopath and my mother is dead, right? So I don't really know my family history much and my, and my immediate family does not speak to me. So I don't know anything, right? But one of the things that was always just, you know, carry with me is like, what happened to my dog? And this woman was, you know, she, I noticed her and then she came up during this forced intermission. I swear to God, this was my mother's, you know, obviously you're very, you're very spiritual and very religious. So you understand like there are, you know, God works in mysterious ways, right? So the projector shuts down as we're seeing this gruesome scene of me looking at the case files with her body, right? Cuts right there. And this woman comes up to me and she goes, you know, I wanted to say something to you earlier. I was like, yeah, I saw you. And she goes, I, I think we had your dog. Was it a wire hair fox terror? And I just start, I'm just like in complete shock. And like the whole world tunes out. And I'm like, oh my God. And she's like, was it a wire hair fox terror? I was like, yes. And I start like tearing up. And she goes, I just want you to know, I grew up on a farm and we had horses and pigs and he he lived the best life and he lived till he was like 14 and he had the best life and he would go sleep with the little piggies at night in the pig pen because he loved them. They were, they would play together and he, he, he lived this life that he was loved and he had free and he could run around on this farm. And I was just like, Oh, and I'm just like bawling full on bawling because it was just like, this is so amazing because you know, when you talk about, I don't want to call it exploitation, but when you, when people are profiting off your story or people are, um, you, they're getting money from yeah. what has happened to you. I mean, that's just, they are profiting off your story. There are amazing little bits that you, at least for me, that you, you, they can never get that are way beyond money, which is the benefit. And, and, and with you guys calling forth this behavior, because this happens so much. You think about how women are, you know, there's so many domestically abusive situations around the world. Yeah. Misogyny is so rampant. And then you have, um, 
you know, with the case of my mother, you know, there's a staggering statistic that 45% of murders in the United States go unsolved. And the fact that when the police initially treated it as a missing persons case, and if it wasn't for that detective coming to the house and, and listening to me when I pulled him aside and said, my mother is dead. Not my, my, my mother didn't get in a fight with my dad. My mother's dead. Those types of cases are, are we're littered with those cautionary tales because so many of these people, um, th these women will go missing and nobody ever hears from them again. So when you, it's amazing with you guys telling that story, yep. there, there is so much good that that does because it, it allows other women and other people to stand up and go, we're not going to take this or, re or recognizing the signs of this because it's yeah. so insidious and just, just you with your mother and the, and with the way he was predatory with you and your siblings of the isolation and all of that. I mean, it's, you know, COVID that we came through where people are locked in yeah. together and whatnot. So it's, um, it's a thing, you know, it's, yeah. it's you know, and, and, it, and it's amazing that you guys, despite not profiting off of that financially, the good that you've put out into the world is incredible. And I want to just commend you for that. That's all. Well, I, I know it's hard and somebody, I understand it. Like I get it. You know? Thank you. Like I get that. And, um, like I, I can see like your emotions coming through, you know, and that you just kind of want to make sure like when you ask me questions and stuff that it's like very not like disturbing my trauma and stuff. And 100%, I, 100%. like, just like yeah. how you talk, I like can see that you're someone that gets it, you know, where there's like people that you know, and I love these people because there's always different people, but they ask like, oh, didn't you stab that guy? And you're like, well, that's not really appropriate to say, but yeah. let's talk about it. <laughs> oh yeah. And it's, and it's interesting, you know, and I think that, so how really fast, how old were you when this happened? I was 25 years old. Well, I was 24 when he, um, my mom met him, but I was sure. 25 when the accident, the trauma happened. Yeah, so you are, you know, and, and just as someone, you know, it, it, what made, when I was listening to your story and thinking about it before this interview, one of the things that, you know, I understand that he was a large guy and I, and I understand he had kind of deteriorated in size, but he was like, I think I, at one point he was 6'2", 230 or something like that. That's a big dude. I mean, I'm 6'2", 200 pounds. And I'm a big guy and I work out and, you know, um, but I, re I remember thinking, and I, and I'm assuming you're much smaller and I remember thinking, wow, I wonder, even though we were 12 years difference at the time, 13 years difference, what that would have been the same thing with me taking on my father, right? Because I heard the thuds in the middle of the night. I heard the footsteps down the hall and I could see my father's footsteps feet in the doorway because I slept with my door open and I was laying like this and I was terrified. I was looking at this Batman clock on the wall, but I was out of my peripheral vision, but I didn't just go like this because I wonder if I had gone like this, would I have gotten up? Would I have gotten a confrontation with him? Would he have killed me? You know, because you're, you're, yeah. if you're in that mode where you're going to, because the, med the murder was premeditated. He had bought the house. He had asked about lowering the basement floor. He dug a grave for her there. You know, he rented a jackhammer previously to do it. It wasn't a crime of passion. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was like, oh, I just decided to kill my wife one night. He was, it was planned for months and months and months. Um, you know, he bought the indoor outdoor carpeting that was sitting on our porch in our other house in our, in, in our house in Mansfield, Ohio. 
months before all this happened, which is what he used to cover her body up underneath the concrete. <laughs> I mean, it's insane. But um, I lost my train of thought for a second. I'm so sorry. No, but I guess I guess um, what, what I was thinking is is your when I thought about your struggle, it took me to that like you know 11 year old boy, almost 12 years old, and what I would have to do if I confronted my father. And I just um, you know I think there was there was this illusion of like how did she do? How did this happen? Um, you know, she was so much smaller and it's just, and, and I listen to it and I go, because when you're in that situation and then you have the force and God, whoever is protecting you is like, this isn't going to happen. Not, not today, buddy. Not on my not watch. Today. Yeah. Not on my watch. And it's, and it's the same thing with me when I, you know, I went to the investigator. I said, my mother is dead. And my father, because my father said, you know, I, I woke up the next morning. I went into the bedroom looking for her body, looking for blood. I came downstairs and I said to my father, I said, where is my mother? And he said, mommy took a little vacation collier. And then he, we went into this like whole thing of, oh, we're not going to call the police. We got into this fight. We're not calling the police. We're not calling the FBI. The FBI. He said the FBI. And I'm thinking to myself at the time, even as an 11 year old child, why would we call the FBI? What does the FBI have anything to do with this? <laughs> you know, but I'm, you know, I had that moment and people ask me, well, how did you find the resolve to, to testify against your father and to, and to, you know, cause I testified again, you know, I went to the, my mother's friends. I said, you need to call the police. I was the one that promoted the, you know, made sure that he got arrested, made sure that he went to prison and people are like, well, how did you do that? And I think that you draw upon that same thing. This isn't happening on my watch. And you, you almost use this power that you harness from, and not to be hooey dooey about it, but you have all of this come in and that's what gives you the strength and the fortitude to act. Oh Yeah. Well, in that moment, I felt like it was just like, it was that moment that everything needed to happen. You know, that's how everything was going to end. It wasn't going to end with him just magically going away. He, it was going to be a death of someone. And in that moment, it was like the knife landed exactly how I needed it to be. And so I picked it up and didn't give it a second thought then. And it was like, everything worked together and I'm scared to death of blood. <laughs> so I only got stabbed twice. And for being in a altercation with someone of that size, that is a miracle for me to come out of it with just like two stab wounds that were not fatal. Yeah, it was amazing. It's amazing. And people don't understand you know, when you think of, you know, my father smashed the back of my mother's skull in and then suffocated her with a plastic bag. I think that, you know, look, all crimes are heinous, all murders are heinous, all these, these things are, are bad, right? But something like, if you shoot someone with a gun, you're far away, you shoot them. It's not personal. Yes. <laughs> to take a knife and to stab someone or to come after someone with a knife, like you, there has to be so much, there's so much behind all of that because it's gruesome. It's just like yeah. suffocating my father, you know, and for him to come at you like that is just shows the, the mentality and the psychopathy behind all of that. And I, and again, when I'm listening to, to it, I, I just draw these immediate parallels to my father, 100%, just, the, you know, everything. And because my father not only, you know, had us as a family, but my father had multiple affairs and multiple girlfriends okay. and multiple stories over his life of different things. Like to one woman, he was like a, a decorated Navy Vietnam pilot, <laughs> you know, to so other people. he was people, a serial was a, perpetrator in a sense. 
while staying married to my mother okay. and I and being a doctor. I mean, when I think about it as an adult, I'm like, how did he have time to be a doctor? He had so many different lives and girlfriends and stories. And you think about these things and it's the same with, with this John Meehan character. You think about these things and you're like, how does all this, like, how do these people keep all this straight? I don't know, because if I tell a lie, I'm like, oh my gosh, I gotta like get this right because I can't keep up with this. This is terrible. How, is awesome. how in the world? <laughs> um, but that's how you separate empathetic people from, you know, non-empathetic people. And that really defines like the cluster Bs, a lot of like the narcissists, sociopaths, psychopaths, not really talking about bipolar in that region of it, but there's so many, they lack empathy. So that's how they're able to get away with things and lie and really do that because they don't have that conscience that it's not right where, you know, you and I were like, we're telling a lie and we're like, oh my gosh, I can't keep up with this because this is, this is a lie, you know, yeah, and we okay. know the difference between right and wrong. Yeah, it's staggering. Well, that pretty much sums it up. Um, you know, when I listen to Tara's story, and of course I have seen the show Dirty John, and when I was watching it, and I didn't listen to the podcast initially, but when I, I've listened to it since, obviously, but... Um, you know, I drew so many parallels. Like I was telling her with my father, like the alternative lifestyle and, or I'm sorry, the alternative lifestyle, the alternative life <laughs> that these people, these sociopaths, these narcissists, they create their own Walter Mitty world and they live in it and they exist and then they suck you into it and then they suck the life out of you and thank God that he actually didn't take this brave young woman's life and that she didn't do more, that he didn't do more damage than he already did to her and her family and her mother and her sisters. You know, the impacts of violence and the consequences of violence, like I've said many times, like I've said in my film, A Murder in Mansfield, it's like a ripple effect that just goes through communities and people. And this happened in Orange County, California, which is a suburb of Los Angeles, but is also a very tight knit close community. And everyone knows each other. I've spent a lot of time in Orange County. It's a very beautiful place, but it also like, it, it's like a small, it has a small town, uh, small town feel to it. Um, so it was a big deal, uh, in the community. So I salute Tara. I salute her mother for having the strength to really carry on with their lives because I know how that feels and I know what it feels like to put a brave face on and they're in the public eye and they endure a ton of scrutiny. You had a television show made about you with movie stars playing your characters and films, you know, television stars. Um, it's, it's a, it's a thing. It's a real thing. And that she deals with every day. So, uh, Thank you to Tara for being on the program. It was so amazing to to talk to you. And I just, I think she's so great. So, um, yeah. And I think that, look, when we see people that go through these circumstances, like Tara, like Deborah, like myself, the lesson I think to really take away is you got to work on yourself and you've got to really just 
you get to, you know, not to sound cliche, but you got to move past it and you find that way, whatever that you way is unique to, to you and to what you're doing. You know, for me, it was to be an artist and create and tell my mother's story for Tara. It's working with animals and empowering other young women to learn self-defense and self-care and self-love above all else and not relying on, Oh, I've got to find a man to make me feel better. No, I have to feel better about myself. And these are really empowering, important messages for anyone, whether you're male, female, transgender, whatever your, your thing is, whatever you identify as we are all human beings at the end of the day. And it's all about finding, finding what is important to you and realizing that you are enough. Like you're enough. You don't need people to validate you for who you are. You are enough. As long as you are a good person, you try to be kind to everyone, including yourself. Look, I'm not here to pontificate on what to do with your life, but I am saying if you, in my personal experience, when you lead with integrity and honesty and just bravery into the world, whatever scenario you're facing, you're going to be okay. So on that note, I'm Collier Landry, and this is Moving Past Murder. Thanks, y'all. This podcast is made possible by support from listeners just like you. Please subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible. Find us on YouTube, youtube.com forward slash Collier Landry. The film A Murder in Mansfield is available on Investigation Discovery, Discovery Plus, and Amazon Prime Video. This podcast is a production of Don't Touch My Radio in association with RSA Entertainment. Please visit mpmpodcast.com to show your support today.